Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. So this morning, uh, I'm going to talk about making decisions in life. Now, a couple of months ago, I, uh, I watched a film called Sully. I think we've got it coming up behind us. Now, I don't know if anyone's seen this film. A few of you have seen this film. Great film. It's, a, it's about a pilot called Chesley Sullenberger. Now, his nickname is Sully, and he's played by Tom Hanks in the film. And it's based on a true story, uh, and it happened on the 15th of January, 2009, so 11 years ago. <coughs> and uh, Sully was piloting this plane that left LaGuardia Airport in New York. And just after it took off, a big flock of birds flew into the plane, and loads of them flew into both engines, basically knocking both engines out. They both just went on fire and stopped working. So Sully's the, the pilot. He, re- he radios into air traffic control. He says... I've lost both engines. And air traffic controller says, uh, sorry, can you repeat that? You've lost an engine? No, 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 I've lost both engines. I am gliding over New York City. Air traffic controller is like, oh my goodness, they're wetting themselves because they're thinking a plane crashes in New York, there's gonna be major catastrophe. So the air traffic controller says, um, okay, well, um, can you maybe glide back to the airport that you've taken off from? Uh, there's this other airport, you could maybe glide over there. Um, I don't know if you'll make it, but could you maybe do those things? And the captain, Sully, and he's, he's been a captain of an airline for, or an airplane for 30 years. He's got a lot of experience. You can just see him in the film. He just sits there and he's thinking. Now, they calculated afterwards that he had 208 seconds to make a decision. He had three and a half minutes to make a decision that would basically decide whether everybody in that plane lived or died. So he thinks, he thinks, and then he radios into air traffic control and he says, I'm going to land it on the Hudson River. Because he thought to himself, if I can't make that airport, that airport, that little airport, and I just get close enough and crash, everyone's going to die. If I try and get back to the airport and don't make it, I'm going to crash, everyone's going to die. So he said, I'm going to land it on the Hudson River. The air traffic controller is like, oh my goodness, you can't do that. Like he's like, oh, that's what I'm going to do. It's not a plane that's supposed to land on river. So he basically takes it real slow and takes his time. And he actually lands the plane. It's got no equipment to land on water on the Hudson River and miraculously all 155 people on board are saved no minor injuries even at all every single one of them is saved now they did some they did some they did some yeah I have spoiled the film really I've spoiled the film yeah you don't need to go see it now but they had a later investigation and they later investigated that if Sully had made any other decision at all apart from the one that he had chosen everybody would have died Everybody would have died. Now, few of us will ever have to make a decision with such high stakes as that. But but most of us will have times in our lives when we do have to make big decisions. Decisions that will affect the rest of our lives. Like, should I take this job or should I take that one? Should I move here? Should I move there? Should I get married to this person or not? And often when big decisions come, we can be unsure of what to do. and, And so we ask God for help. And what we often ask God for is for him to show us a sign. Some indication that the decision we're about to make is the right one, not the wrong one. So that's what I want us to look at today. This whole kind of asking God for a sign 
thing. That's what I'm going to talk about today. So this morning we're going to look at the story of Gideon in Judges chapter 6 and 7. Because Gideon doesn't just ask God for one sign. doesn't just ask him for two signs. He asks him for three signs and God gives him all three signs plus a bonus one that he doesn't even ask for. Okay, So this is the passage when it comes to asking God for a sign. Now, it's a long passage. I'm not going to read it all. I'm going to paraphrase bits of it and then read a few bits. The bits I'll read should come up on the screen uh, behind me. So, a <clears throat> little bit of background. The story of Gideon is, um, is set at a time when Israel is in real trouble. Okay, They're being oppressed by the Midianites, this kind of foreign people group. And what basically happened was whenever the Israelites got their crops all ready, they were just ready to be harvested and their herds were all plump, the Midianites would just sweep in with their army and just nick all the stuff. Now, if that was us, we'd be like, okay, that's pretty annoying. But for the Israelites, this is what they lived on, okay? So when the Midianites took all their food and their herds, they were starving and they were dying, okay? So it's a dire situation for the Israelites. They're in a real bad way. And the passage in Judges says they cried out to God. They called out to God to help him. Now, this actually... This actually says more than, than what you think, because the Israelites at that time, they weren't in a good place with God at all. Okay, They really weren't in a good place with God. They'd rejected him. They were worshipping loads of idols. So for, so for them to call out to God meant they were really desperate. Okay, They were really desperate if they were calling out to God. And the story of Gideon is God's response to that prayer, to them calling out to him. And the first thing God does in response to this prayer of them calling out to him is he sends an angel to someone called Gideon. Now, he's not a big leader. He's not a king or anything like that. He's just a normal guy. And this angel appears to Gideon while he's, it says, the passage says, while he's threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Now, you might be thinking, why on earth would he be doing that? Well, back in those days, when you threshed wheat to separate the wheat from the chaff, you did it on a hilltop so the wind would blow away the chaff. That's where you did it. But he didn't want to do that on a, hill, on a hilltop because if he did, the Midianites would see him and nick all the grain. So he did it in a wine press, a building. He was trying to hide it from the Midianites. So this angel appears to Gideon and uh, he says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And Gideon's like, excuse me, did you say mighty warrior? Uh, is there someone else in this room? You know, he's kind of like, really? And then Gideon shoots back at this angel and says, well, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Like, why are the Midianites oppressing us and why is life so hard? The angel of the Lord says to him, doesn't really answer his question. He just says, I am sending you. Go and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Gideon replies, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest and I'm the least in my family. The Lord answers, I will be with you. That's what he says. I will be with you. So Gideon realizes this is kind of a big deal. So what he does is he asks for a sign that this really is God's messenger. Oh, thanks. And in response, the angel tells him to, to put some meat, bread, and soup on a rock, which Gideon does. And then the angel of the Lord touches it with a staff, and immediately a fireball consumes the food. So Gideon's like, okay, great, sign passed. Yes, that is God. Okay, I get it. But then later that evening, uh, God speaks again to Gideon saying this. He says, tear down your father's altar to Baal and build an altar to me in its place. Now, Gideon's pretty scared at this because he knows the whole town all love Baal. They all worship Baal. This is their idol. This is their God. So he's pretty, pretty afraid. But he says, you know, I'm going to obey God. So what he does is he does it at night so no one can see him do it. But apparently some people do see him do it because the next day, all the people of the town wake up. Their idol to Baal is gone and they do some investigation and they find out that it is Gideon. So <clears throat> they show up at Gideon's house, and they go and they say to Gideon's dad, we want you to bring out your son because we want to kill him for breaking down Baal's altar. 
And Gideon's dad, now I love Gideon's dad in this story, he's a guy with a bit of wisdom. He says to this angry mob who showed up at his house who want to kill his son, he says, why are you defending Baal? If he's really a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. He doesn't need you to do it. And the angry mob were like, ah, fair point, actually. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, argument one, okay. And they all just disperse and leave, and Gideon's fine. I think, well done, Gideon's dad. I mean, that's great. So Gideon kind of ends this part of the story um, kind of alive, which is good. He's, he's, he's done well. He's still alive. Now, sometime later, now we're not sure how long, the Midianites gather their forces with their, their mates, the Amalekites, another kind of foreign nation, to attack the Israelites. Now, by this stage, Gideon seems to have emerged as the leader of the Israelites. We're not totally sure how or how long that took, but he seems to have emerged as the leader of the Israelites. And chapter 6, verse 34 says, The Spirit of the Lord came on Gideon, and he summons his people, the Abizrites, that's his tribe, and then he manages to get four of the other 12 tribes of Israel together, and they join forces to come against the Midianites and the Amalekites. But before any fight takes place, Gideon goes to God again. And we read what happens in chapter 6, verses 36 to 40. Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is any dew, if there's dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then you will know that you will save that, that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, do not be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. But this time, make the fleece dry and let the ground be covered with dew. That night, God did so. Only the fleece was dry. All the ground was covered with dew. So Gideon is like, wow, great, ask for two signs, I get them both, fantastic. He responds with faith, and he takes his army, and they set up camp opposite the Midianites, ready to go. But again, before any action takes place, God speaks to Gideon, and we see this in chapter 7, verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I'm sure Gideon's thinking, really? We're already outnumbered. He says, you've got too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel would boast against me, saying my own strength has saved me. Now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left, while 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, there is still too many men. Take them down to the water and I will thin them out for you there. If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told them, separate those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. 300 of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let the others go home. I do wonder what Gideon is thinking right now. Lord, 300. I mean, there's thousands of Midianites. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. Now that night, Gideon is going to sleep and God speaks to him again and says this in verse 9. Get up and go down against the camp because I'm going to give it into your hands. If you're afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura and listen to what they're saying. Afterward, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. They are afraid. So they sneak down, hide behind a bush and overhear a conversation of these two Midianite soldiers. And this is how it goes. Verse 13, first soldier says, I had a dream last night. Second soldier's like, 
Okay, what was your dream? He says, well, a round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend said, this can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. So Gideon's there behind this bush with his mate thinking, yes. So he jumps up, real encouraged, goes back to his guys and says, right, come on, get your stuff. We're going to do this. So they get some jars, lights and trumpets. And the idea is we're going to make loads of light and sound and kind of a big show of force and just hope the Midianites panic and do something stupid, which is exactly what they do. Works a treat. The Midianites panic and run when they see the lights and the trumpets. They start attacking each other as they go. Gideon then contacts the army he sent home because God didn't say you got to send him home for good. Contacts the army he sent home. He also contacts another of the tribes of Israel and they chase the Midianites and eliminate their threat completely from that point. He frees the Israelites from oppression and leads to many years of peace and prosperity. That is the story of Gideon. It's a great story, amen? Yes, a great story. Now, what do we learn from this story for us in today and in, in, uh, in 2020 in Manchester? Well, there's loads of things we can learn from this story. But this morning, I just want to focus on two things. Two things this morning. Two things I want to focus on. The first thing I think the story of Gideon shows us is real simply that God does sometimes give us signs. God does sometimes give us signs. Now, Gideon, Gideon is like the inventor of the show me a sign school of guidance. You know, like he, he, he asks for not one, not two, but three signs from God and God gives them them all. He asks for the angel of the Lord to you know, burn up the, the food. Um, he asks for the, the fleece to be wet, the dry, ground dry, the fleece to be dry and the ground wet. And God does them all. And then he throws in that little bonus one. You know, come down, listen to this dream and hear what these two guys say. And God just throws that in for free. So Gideon, there's loads of guidance and signs here. Now, it's natural for us to, to read this story and think, you know what, I wouldn't mind a bit of that. I would love some clear signs from God. You know, whenever I have to make big decisions in life, you know, which course should I choose? Which uni should I go to? Which job should I do? Where should I live? Who should I go out with? Should I get married? Who to? Should I have kids? How many? How do I raise them? Should I retire? When? Where? I mean, sure, we'd all like clear signs from God when making these kinds of decisions in life. And many of us, I'm sure, have asked God to guide us in these areas in the past. And some of us are maybe asking God to guide us in these areas right now. I can remember for myself, probably about six years ago, um, my wife and I, we were looking to, to buy a house in, um, in Withington because we were going to plant a church there. And we looked everywhere and we did, just didn't quite find anything. And then uh, my wife Elizabeth, she was just praying and she had a, had a picture. And she says, you know, I feel this is from God. Um, and the picture was of a football pitch, but not just of the whole pitch. It was of the corner flag of a football pitch. And she felt that God was saying, I want you to, you know, the, the football pitch is like Withington. I want you to look just outside of Withington. It's almost like you're going to be just outside the football pitch, just near the corner flag. So we did, and we widened our search, um, and we started looking at Burnage. And uh, we found this house, the one we currently live in. Um, we, we went and looked at it, and it was cheap, which was good. Um, and I remember when we kind of went into the back garden, and we looked at the back garden. And if you've ever been to our house, our, the corner of our back garden actually touches the corner of a football pitch where the, where the corner flag is. And I was like, Elizabeth is this a sign? She's like, I think it is a sign. I think it is. So we bought the place and it's ours. We still live there. It did help that it was cheap as well. But, um, you know, give me a sign and it's like half a million. Like, oh. um, so, so, yeah, I do really believe that was a sign. I remember um, I was in Uganda, actually, a couple of months ago. 
doing some teaching and um, it was Sunday and I was due to preach at a local church and um, I had this killer sermon prepared like you know one of those ones where it's just the illustrations are awesome like the points are just so well applied you just everyone on their knees at the end of the sermon it's that kind of I was like yes Lord this is going to be great and I'm there on Sunday morning I get up have a shower and I just sit in my bed and I just have this sense and I'm like is this God I really hope this is not God but I just have this sense don't preach that sermon. I want you to preach about grace. And I was like, oh, I really hope this is not the Lord because I don't really want to. I've got my killer sermon all prepared. It's good to go. But it just, this sense, this thought just wouldn't go away. And I was like, is that you, God? I mean, I want to be obedient, but like, really, this is... Uh, so I kind of wrestled over it. And I, I got to the stage where I, I, I kind of did what I wanted to do. I thought... I'm going to choose to believe that that's not God. That's just, I've just had too much coffee, um, overactive imagination, because really, like, I don't want it to be God. But then I just I said to God, look, Lord, if this is you, and like, I never really do this, but if this is you, if you do really want me to preach on grace at this church in Uganda, you, I mean, you need to give me a sign. And honestly, and this never really happens to me, but I kid you not, 10 seconds later, this woman in the distance starts singing Amazing Grace, <laughs> right? She starts singing Amazing Grace, and I am like, even cynical Andy is like, okay, okay, that is God. Yeah. She's just like, it was a Sunday morning. I think there was a church nearby. They were rehearsing. She got the microphone out, and she just sang, sang a whole song, and I'm like, oh, gosh, okay. So I preached on grace, and that was, but yeah, it was a sign. It was a clear sign from God, and you know, to be honest, he had to make it clear for me, because I'm... A bit slow on that kind of stuff. So, um, but yeah, it was a clear sign for God. Maybe some of you here, maybe you've had similar experience when you've asked God for a sign, and um, when when it comes to making a decision in life, and and maybe He's given you one, and you've been like, "Whoa, that is so cool," or maybe you've asked Him for a sign, and He hasn't given you one. I mean, that happens sometimes. Let's be honest about it. It does happen sometimes. So God does sometimes give us signs, and when that happens, it's great. But I just want to say, if we, if we make our Christian life all about getting signs from God for things, we can end up just making God into a satnav. And it may not surprise you, but God doesn't want to just be your satnav in life. You know, he's interested in a little bit more than that. He's much more interested in being in a relationship with us. So sometimes if he doesn't give you the guidance, but it draws you closer to him, he's quite happy with that because that's what he really wants you know the best way to know God's will for our lives is actually through having a close relationship with him because when we have a close relationship with him we learn to recognize his voice Jesus says my sheep listen to my voice I know them and they follow me so when we have a close relationship with God we learn what his will is we learn his ways we learn we become more like him So, you know, when we have a a close relationship with Jesus, we might not always get the answer, but our relationship with it means that it's okay because we've got a bigger perspective. The anxiety of making the right decision is replaced with peace and trust that God has it under control. It's in his hands. Okay, sign or no sign, he has it. He is in control. Okay, so that's the first thing I want to talk about today. I've only got two points, so you're halfway, less than halfway, um, more than halfway, actually. So God does sometimes give us signs, uh, but the story uh, of Gideon also shows us 
Now, you might not have seen this before. The story of getting ulcer shows us that God also asks us for signs too. Now, the thing we often miss from this story is that Gideon doesn't just ask God for signs, but God also asks Gideon for some signs back. Okay? So Gideon asks the angel of the Lord to prove that he's really from God. And the angel of the Lord gives a sign to do that. But then God asks Gideon for a sign to see whether he's really with him. He says, right, Gideon, destroy your father's altars. Let me see if you're really with me. That's a sign. Gideon asks God, can you make the fleece wet and the ground dry? Can you make the ground fleece dry and then the ground wet? That's a sign. God does it. But a few days later, God says to Gideon, get rid of two thirds of your army. That's a sign. That's God saying, I want to know if you're with me. Yeah, forget you thinking if, if I'm with you. I want to know if you're with me. And Gideon passes the sign. He does it. And then God comes to him again. Okay, let's get this army down to 300. Are you really with me? It's another sign. And Gideon is putting them right back. He's passing each and every one of these signs. Now, sometimes I think we give Gideon a bit of a hard time in the Bible. Do you know? Like, we always go on about the fact that he doesn't have much courage and he's a bit afraid. But let me tell you, he does everything God asks him to do. Like, he obeys everything he is told to do. So I think Gideon is a great example of obedience, actually. A great example of obedience. Now, this isn't a formula, and it doesn't always play out as neatly as this. But the story of Gideon does show us that as we seek God to show us signs that he is with us, we must know that he, too, is seeking signs that we are with him. And the sign he asks for is obedience. Before Gideon put out the fleeces, he'd already shown God he was obedient. He he obeyed God and cut down his dad's idols, even though it nearly got him killed. God loves obedience. Jesus says in John 15, you're my friends if you do what I command. I love the way Mike Pilavachi puts it. He always says this, obedience is God's love language. Obedience is God's love language. The best way to show God that you love him and are with him is through obeying him, forgiving those who hurt you, not gossiping or lying, sharing your faith, being generous, staying sexually pure. These are just some of the ways we can show God that we are with him. And let me tell you a story about something happened to me. Gosh, 13 years ago, I was 21. I went to America for the summer. I went there for three months. And uh, I was working at a, a kid's camp. It was with Camp America. I don't know if you've ever done that. So I was working at a kid's camp for the summer. It wasn't a, a Christian thing. And the camp was right in the middle of nowhere. So basically for three months, I was, I'd been a Christian for about four years at that point. But I basically for three months, I was completely cut off from my kind of Christian support network, from church, from everything. Everything that I, I would get support and help in terms of discipleship. So that said, I had a great time. It was a, it was a fun time. But we got to the end of the three months. And um, a few of the staff members and myself were at this party. Now, believe it or not, this party is in Washington, D.C., It's a rooftop party right next to the Watergate building and about a five minute walk from uh, the White House. Now, to this day, I don't know how I ended up there. Like, I just went with the the flow, the crowd, and we just ended up at this house party. It was loads of students, so we're there. So it was nice, we're kind of seeing the view and everything. And then, um, as I'm at this party, this girl comes up and starts chatting to me. And uh, she chats to me loads and gets a bit flirty. And then she says, would you like to come back to my flat? Oh, we both knew what that meant, okay? and I, I'd, uh, you know, I'd had three months where I'd just been a bit in the desert in terms of my faith. And then I get this girl saying, come back to my flat. 
What's going through my head is my entire world is across an ocean. This is the end of my three months. I'm going to jump on a plane the next day and go home. What happens here, no one will ever find out. I'm never going to see these people again. I can, just, I can just sin and get away with it and no one will ever know. That's what's going through my head. I could just do this. So she says, do you want to come back to my flat? So I just said, okay. So we got up, we left. And as we're going down the stairs, I thought to myself, you know what, this is my last day in America. We're about a five minute walk from the White House and I've never seen it. So I just said to her, you're from around here. She's like, yeah. Can we like, is the White House near here? She's like, yeah, it's just a five minute walk. Can we, can we just go to the White House and walk around it on the way to your flat? She's like, yeah, okay. So we, we walk together, we walk along to the White House and you can see all the Secret Service agents outside all speaking into the wrists and stuff, you know, you know, a couple walking around. We walk right around it. I was like, whoa, the White House, this is so cool. It was late at night. And then we got around the other side of the White House and when we started walking back to her flat, she says, it's just this way. And I, and I said, and I don't know what it was in me because I knew I could do this and get away with it. Something in me just said, <laughs> I just, look, I'm a Christian. I don't believe in sex before marriage, so I don't think we should do this. And you want to see her face. I mean, she looked mortified. I mean, and so she said, she said, look, I'll take you back to the party. She took me back to the party, disappeared. I never saw her again. And I've just been thinking about that story this week. And I've been thinking that, like, that was a real significant point in my walk with the Lord. Like, I was in a place where I could sin and nobody would ever find out. And it was almost as if God was, was kind of testing me to see if I was really with him. And by obeying him for no other reason than my love for him, I was giving him a sign that I really was with him. You know, we can ask God to show us signs that he is with us, but we must know that he too is seeking signs that we are with him. And you know, we often think the big decisions in life are the ones where we don't know what to do. You know, where should I live? What job should I do? I think we need to flip that around. I think the important decisions are not the ones where we know where we, what we don't know what to do. The important decisions are the ones where we know exactly what we should do. You know, should I get drunk this weekend? Should I lie to my boss? Should I withhold information on my tax form? Should I start a romantic relationship with someone who's not a Christian? Like God has spoken on these things. Like the Bible is very clear about them. But these can often be the things where we go, yeah, but, you know, there's grace. You know, it doesn't really matter. Jesus will forgive me. And well, yeah, there is grace. But these things really, really do matter. Because there are signs to God that we are with him and that we love him. You know, I can go home and I can say to my wife, I love you. But if it's not backed up with deeds, it doesn't mean much, does it? The same is true with God. God loves it when we obey him in the everyday things. He loves obedience. He honors it. He rewards it. And we see that right throughout the Bible. I think we've got a picture of Rick Warren here. Next. Rick Warren is a pastor of an American megachurch. Um, he has written uh, The Purpose Driven Life. Anyone read The Purpose Driven Life? Yeah, really good Christian book. Um, it's so good that it's actually the best-selling Christian book in history. And it's actually, apparently, it's the best-selling non-fiction book in history. I, I couldn't believe that. But it's sold millions and millions and millions of copies, okay? Rick Warren's very honest. This book has made me a lot of money, okay? He doesn't hide from that. It's made me a lot of money. 
And um, a number of years after Rick Warren uh, wrote this book, someone came to him and said, Rick, why do you think God chose you to write the best-selling Christian book in history? Rick Warren says, quick as a flash, because he knew he could trust me with the money. That's why he asked me to write the best-selling Christian book in history. But he chose me because he knew he could trust me with the money. Now, there's something you've got to know about Rick Warren. When he got married in his early 20s, him and his wife started tithing to church. After the first year of marriage, they upped it to 11% to 12%, to 15%, to 20%. And each year of their marriage, they would up their giving to church and Christian charities. Now, he wasn't leading a big church. Their salary wasn't going up at this time, but they just kept giving more and more and more of their money away. Nobody knew about it. It's just him and his wife just doing this. They, they started giving 30% of their income away, 40% of their income away, and he wasn't earning big money. So they didn't upgrade their house. They didn't buy many new cars. They just kept giving it away. And Rick Warren did that right throughout his life for 30, 30 years. And then when God looks and thinks, who am I going to get to write the best-selling Christian book in history? Well, what had Rick Warren been doing for 30 years? For 30 years, he'd been sending signs of obedience to God. He'd been sending signs of obedience to God for years. And God goes, that's my guy. I can trust that guy with the money. Rick Warren now actually reversed tithes. He gives 92% of his income away and lives on 8%. Now, granted, he makes a lot of money from the book. But he's continued that, that just that, that obedience of being generous with what he has. You know, Gideon obeyed God, and God used him to do a great thing. Now, he had his doubts. That's why we need signs. God's gracious like that. But he obeyed, and God used him to do a great thing. Now, if you're sitting here today and you think, I want to be used by God... Well, the place to start is to start obeying him in the everyday things. Obey him in the everyday things. You know, when you get an opportunity to gossip and you don't, that is a big decision you've just made. When you get an opportunity to be generous and you are, that is a big decision you've just made. When you get an opportunity to lie, but you don't and you're honest, even though there's repercussions for that, that is a big decision. You know, when you get the opportunity to big yourself up and look great, but you don't and you stay humble... That is a big decision. These are the big decisions in life. Not should I take this job or that one. Because these are the decisions that show God that we are with him and that we love him. Amen? Amen. So the story of Gideon shows us that God does sometimes give us signs. But it shows us that God also asks for signs too. Signs of obedience. Obedience in the everyday things. So I just want to say, just as we get to the end here... What are some of the everyday things that you could obey God in this week? Okay, I just want you to think, close your eyes and just think. <coughs> what is something I'm going to, I'm planning to do this week and I could not do it to obey God? What is something I'm not planning to do, but I could do to obey God? It could be being generous to someone, giving someone something. It could be not gossiping or not lying about something. Yeah, what are some of the things you could do this week to obey God? Little things, everyday things. You know, at the end of the film, uh, Sully they show some footage of seven years later and uh, all 155 passengers uh, they gather for this reunion and there Sully appears in the middle of them and oh my goodness 
Do they applaud him? They applaud him till their hands are sore and they're hugging him and they're kissing him and they're patting him on the back, taking pictures. Why? Because they all knew they owed him their lives. They all knew they owed him their lives. And I just watching that, you know, a few months ago, just made me think, how much more do we owe God for what he's given us? You know, he's made us, he's forgiven us, he's saved us, he's adopted us into his family. He's, he's given us a future with him forever. So I just... I know we hear that like all the time at church, but I just want us to just take that moment, just let that penetrate our hearts, what he's actually done for us. It is amazing. It is amazing. And you know, the ultimate sign that God is with us is not whether a fleece is wet or dry or whether, you know, you manage to convince an angel to like burn up some food on a rock. The ultimate sign that God is with us is the cross. Because it's at the cross that Jesus obeyed his father and died for the sin of the world. So that we could be forgiven for all those times when we have been disobedient. And we do and we are. So that we could be saved. So that we could receive an inheritance with God in heaven that can never perish or spoil or fade. That is the hope we have. And it's great, isn't it? 